So this period of retreat has been going for about 10 days now for most of you. And sense of really settling in, start to become established, whether here for the two weeks or the four weeks. I think it's somewhat beyond the arriving stage. Although, in one sense, every moment we're invited to arrive again. And one of the questions I think that is useful to reflect upon wherever we find ourselves in the journey of a retreat is the question of what is involved in engaging ourselves skillfully. What does that mean? And sometimes the the term of... uh, wise or skillful effort, sometimes right effort, which I don't find quite so useful. But uh, that quality of engagement. And I find the word engagement useful. Effort sometimes is associated with a a kind of a pushing or a striving or an attachment to some kind of outcome, result, or kind of end point. And in the Dharma practice, uh, we need to very much engage, but to do so skillfully or to bring some effort, we could say, we need to do so skillfully in order for it to bear fruit. And the Buddha was once asked, how did you cross the flood? And the flood is a, a phrase that's used in the teachings for the for the way in which we're carried by the flood of of craving, of aversion, of confusion and delusion, the way in which we can be swept through our lives, swept away by our lives, it seems. And the Buddha was asked, how did you cross the flood? His response was, not halting and not striving. That is how I crossed the flood. He said, he went on to say, when I strived and struggled, I was whirled about. When I halted, I sunk beneath the surface. And it's a kind of an interesting image or metaphor, I think, the sense of one's practice as crossing the flood uh, as perhaps a strong river or something like that. And we might see that if we try too hard, It doesn't serve us, but if we don't engage well, we kind of become lost in what's happening. And so this this term, sama vayama, vayama, wise effort, skillful engagement. And for myself, the way I would define what that means, what that's about, is the really the determined application of wisdom. In the face of circumstances, here on the retreat, many of the circumstances we encounter are inner circumstances. Of course, in our lives, inner and outer circumstances uh, feature. But to apply wisdom in the face of circumstances, this is what our energy is directed to in practice. And we have to ask the question, what is worthy of our life's energy, what's worthy of giving our effort to, the vitality, the juice of our life. 
And in the context of the Dharma teachings and this practice, where you kind of frame that in a particular way in terms of the end of suffering, the realization of, of freedom, the liberation of the human heart and mind, and that this is something truly worthy of our effort, of our engagement in life and the liberation of all beings as the, the fullest expression of all that, the emancipation of life itself. If we look at our lives, and probably if we look at what goes on in our retreats, certainly it goes on in my retreats, so I can't speak for all of you, but uh, I suspect that something we'll notice is that a certain amount of energy, sometimes quite a lot of energy, can be expended in the pursuing of certain outcomes or the avoiding of certain outcomes or experiences. This kind of habit, this tendency of life that we see, that we're probably all quite familiar with, seeking for or attempting to avoid one thing or another. And ultimately this doesn't bring us satisfaction. This is, you know, kind of one of the baseline teachings of the Buddha. One of the frameworks this practice makes sense within is that, oh yes, actually seeking to pursue, to avoid experience doesn't actually bring happiness, peace, freedom. It simply leads to an entanglement and, of course, a, a frantic exhaustion as we try more and more and harder and harder in that regard. And so there's a a way in which we are moved, we're inspired. And of course, I trust that's a significant part of why you're here. I'm not imagining I'm telling you something you're not already aware of in this point in the, what I'm speaking of. And yet to see that that bringing of our energy to something fruitful in life, that that requires a kind of an urgency a certain passion and sometimes when we've settled into a retreat and things are maybe settled a bit more flowing we kind of got used to it we know how it works we kind of know where we can make it a little more comfortable don't we we kind of figure those things out as we go we sometimes need to just remember the truth of our mortality we're not here forever the impermanence of this retreat it won't be like this forever, these precious and supportive conditions for practice, to, to contemplate the sense of our precious opportunity here for practice is part of what brings us in contact with a sense of that urge which leads to a skillful urgency, that movement to engage in practice. And, you know, the metaphor was used of a room on fire. If we see the room that we're in is on fire, we don't sort of contemplate sort of too many options apart from getting out of the room or putting the fire out, or possibly both. But that's really nothing else makes sense. Possibly getting some other people out of the room as well. I guess that makes sense too. And the Buddha, he, he spoke of this. He said, you know, the failure to, the, to see the urgency of our human condition. It's like children playing with their toys in a house that's burning down. And so we might just be aware if there are ways, and without judging, 
or blaming in any way, but aware of there's ways in which we see ourselves starting to play out that movement of looking to gain, to keep, or to sustain pleasant, enjoyable, comfortable, nice experiences in the context of meditation. This isn't to say they're bad and that they're not useful, but we're, we start getting involved with trying to get them or keep them, rather than understanding some of the things that can be beautiful, pleasant, enjoyable, in terms of calm, in terms of openness, in terms of a, a kindliness of heart, which can be sweet and lovely experiences, but that we're not doing them because they feel good, or to make ourselves kind of have a nice experience so we can feel good about ourselves or our meditation, but because there's something beneficial in those qualities. And to see what is wise effort here. What is it to skillfully engage, to bring the vitality of our life to bear on our condition, our circumstance, this human existence. In terms of Dharma practice, wise effort is essentially the effort to be awake. The effort to be present where we are, not to bring about a particular kind of experience. Now, within that, of course, we have perhaps and hopefully come to understand the benefit of certain qualities. And there's a, a way in which we seek to cultivate, to support um, a steadiness, a, a focus, a concentration or samatha quality of heart and mind. Or a quality of kindness, of openness, of softness, of generosity, of heart towards others and ourselves. And it's really important and beautiful and noble practice to be engaging in the development of such things, but understanding that it's not to do so in order to have a particular experience, but because through the process of that engagement and that cultivation, something grows in terms of the capacity and the potentiality of heart and mind. And it's this transformation of the heart and mind that's important, not the experiences we have along the way. And so... Ultimately, through being awake, through being present, we can see more and more clearly what is wholesome and useful and how to support that. What is harmful, unwholesome, unuseful, and how to begin to free ourselves from the grip of such patterns, tendencies, or um, orientations of mind. And so, this kind of brings us to one of the, the sort of classical frameworks of the Buddha's teachings, where he sp spoke about the four great efforts. And again, that effort word's a bit funny. It easily brings a sense of contraction or tightness or battling. Sometimes it can feel that way. You know, the Buddha used the image of, uh, of Dharma practice in case it's been challenging on occasion for you at any point in these days. You know, he said to, 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 to free the mind was like to take on in battle a thousand enemies on a thousand battlefields a thousand times. And it's kind of like yeah, that sounds like that might involve a little bit of effort, and um, it's a, obviously it's a very martial image. I'm not sure it's actually the most useful one for most of us who probably have some degree of the, the tendency of the Western psychology or the Western psychological orientation towards efforting and trying too hard. And so uh, sometimes we you know, emphasise actually not efforting, not trying, not pushing so much as a way of coming into balance. But in terms of these teachings, the four great efforts, or again we could say the four great endeavours of our practice at a kind of 
moment-to-moment level are directed towards this. And the way the Buddha described them was not giving rise to unwholesome qualities which haven't arisen. So taking, you know, classically we talk about greed and aversion as the two most obvious of which there are many versions and expressions. Not giving rise to greed or aversion that hasn't arisen. Makes sense. And abandoning unwholesome qualities which have arisen. So greed or aversion arising, seeing if we can abandon that, let it go, put it down. And the, the third and fourth are giving rise or, or bringing forth wholesome qualities which haven't arisen, such as mentioned, like calm, tranquility, kindness, discernment, patience, courage, resolve. These are wholesome qualities and giving rise to them if they haven't or when they haven't arisen. And the fourth is uh, sustaining or strengthening the wholesome qualities which have arisen. And I think it's an interesting framework to look at or to reflect on a little bit. To see that it's about something that can be brought into or deepened in its strength, its capacity, the wholesome, and that which can be abandoned or in fact not brought forth. Understanding experiences of the wholesome, the unwholesome, things that arise as a conditioned process. We see it's not about becoming good or not being bad. It's more understanding what are the mechanisms. And those words good and bad aren't usually that helpful here. So I find wholesome, unwholesome, skillful, unskillful, much more useful ways to refer to those kinds of qualities that we're trying to support or that we're trying to actually free ourselves from, to let go of. And so the question that we have to ask here, and we have to look at it, I think, with some some wisdom, really, is how we're classifying things as wholesome or unwholesome, positive or not positive. Because it's not about good or bad, right or wrong, or about whether the experience is pleasurable or not pleasurable. And what we can see is that the, the kind of the more, shall we say, undeveloped or primal mechanisms of the consciousness are much more towards get and keep what's pleasant and get rid of and stop the arising of what's unpleasant. And so these four great efforts or great and wholesome endeavours in terms of practice, they correspond to the way we need to shift our inner orientation. So that the, the blindness or the, 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 conscious that is, the consciousness that is, in a way, unconscious, that is not awake to the truth, to the dharma, to the way things are, tends to operate in terms of the, the arising and the sustaining of pleasure, the pleasant, the comfortable, the flattering, the, the entertaining, the... Uh, Enjoyable, and we call it good. And avoiding or bringing to an end the unpleasant, the painful, the difficult, the scary, the unflattering, which we call bad. And through the process of wisdom, we actually begin to substitute that sense of wholesomeness for pleasant. And we substitute in our way of relating to things that recognition of unwholesomeness rather than the way in which our system's wired up to tune in to what's pleasant or unpleasant. So unwholesomeness for unpleasant.
And as we begin to do this, a real shift starts to take place. And it's mindfulness that allows us to see more clearly what's actually the truth of those two dynamics. The one dynamic where we're kind of really oriented around whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, which is the habitual, the unconscious, and very much, in a way, the materialistic orientation of not just the mind but our world often, and that sense of orienting towards actually what's wholesome, beneficial, and useful, and actually beginning to see that really clearly. I remember having a very striking experience of this when I was in my um, early 30s, and I, I was experiencing a lot of fatigue and exhaustion, and I eventually was diagnosed with a uh, what's called mild or Addison's disease, but a mild or moderate version, which is basically an adrenal dysfunction. So limited capacity of my adrenal glands to handle, amongst other things, sugar. And I had to give it up for a year to let my body recover. And um, it was really interesting because I like sweet things. I still like sweet things. I like sweet things there. But I got to make, eventually, to make the association, that really nice sweet thing and the feeling of what it was like when the fatigue and the, the way my whole system just kind of stopped operating as a result of putting sugar in it. And it was really interesting to look at those sweet things and rather than thinking, yum, that's going to be nice in my mouth, I could, I could feel, I didn't have to think about it, it was like the sense of, oh, that feels horrible, that feeling when I'm fatigued. And the interest in the sweet things just dropped away. Now, of course, when that fatigue thing stopped happening, the interest came back. So it's not an ultimate solution in one sense, but it's not an ultimate problem either. It's okay for my system to eat a moderate amount of sweet things. But it was very interesting how the idea that this is yum or nice went away when there was a clear recognition of the impact that was unwholesome. And, you know, underlying a lot of our unskillful patterns and reactivities, based both inner patternings and outer behaviours that we see in the world, is the idea that, for instance, um, sort of selfishness serves our well-being. And that generosity is some form of deprivation. That somehow um, sensitivity and respect for others means that we'll get walked all over, whereas being callous or even um, sort of violent actually can serve our welfare. Those are the kind of ideas that you see being acted out in the world, whether or not people profess to believe them, and we can see it in our minds. Sometimes if we're kind of being really angry with something that arose in our experience or with ourselves, we think... Oh, that comes from some idea that that anger actually helps, even if we realise it's painful and it doesn't help. And so with mindfulness, we start to see, we start to notice the effect of that which is what we could call unwholesome or harmful. And as we notice it, as, we, as we're more present to it, we start to naturally, the, the urge to hold on to it starts to drop away. We, soon, we let go to support, to not support such things. So we start to see that something like um, craving is actually painful to us. And it's like I have this image of um, if, if one should find a piece of gold, a large piece of gold, and you think, great, and we grab it. And just as we grab it, we realise that it's actually heated to about you know, 200 degrees. And it's burning us. And there's the sense of, but all the things in my life this lump of gold could make better for me. 
just use a, a classical valuable material. I don't think it happens that often that one runs into a hot lump of gold. But, but the moment you realize that actually, no, no, what's actually happening is this idea of what the gold will do for me, which is an idea, but the actuality is it's burning my hand. When we get that bit, we drop it. Until we get that bit, we, no, no, I need it, I want it, I want to have it. All the things I can do with it. And so this is, again, where both the, the, the wise engagement of practice of awareness allows us to see the truth of what's wholesome and what isn't. And in that way, when we notice things that are arising in our, in our hearts, and our minds, to pause with them and say, oh, what's that like? Oh, it's painful. Oh, that's a suggestion. That's a sign that maybe there's not something useful in in craving, in grasping, in anger, in aversion. And there's a natural interest or willingness to let it go. And likewise, as we notice what's wholesome, we feel what it's like when there's some patience or some equanimity or some kindliness or, or some courageous willingness to stay present with something difficult. We can feel, oh yeah, there's actually something wholesome in that and there's a natural, there's a natural movement to support it. And so a lot of the way in which skillful engagement or wise effort works is by being present with and beginning to see in the actual experience of what's happening how the wholesome leads to well-being and how the unwholesome does not. We naturally then start to discern what is wholesome and what isn't. Truly and really, genuinely. And actually start to orient towards it. It's not as if we have to make the wholesome arise because it actually keeps happening. And it's not as if we have to stop the unwholesome from arising, but just start to see, oh, okay, I don't need to pick this up in the same way as I might have when I believed it truly served me. So this then brings us really to the process of how that works a little more and how that operates It's not just a random paying of attention. Of course, that's the foundation. We need to be present. We need to be awake. Whether we're cultivating insight, vipassana, whether we're working more with uh, samatha, calm, or with uh, metta and uh, loving kindness, all of those practices require us to be present, to be awake, in order to engage in them. Other, you know, if if we're not awake, then practice isn't happening. That's quite simple. And within that, then it's, okay, so how do we make these practices work? And what we see is that it's actually skillful attention that becomes the refinement of attention. We start off with just be awake, that's pay attention. Just be mindful, just be present. And then, okay, what is skillful? What is useful attention? And it's the way that we attend Wise attention, skillful attention, yoni so manisikara. Yoni so manisikara. I don't know why I like the sound of it, but I do. Um, I don't really know that much or use that much Pali, but uh, that, that phrase has a nice ring to it, it seems. And part of why I like, maybe not the sound of the Pali, but the, um, the phrase itself, it's to do with, look. it's not a kind of a, there's ways that are right and ways that are wrong. And, you know, 
you can make a list of this is right and that's wrong and you should pay attention to these things and you shouldn't pay attention to those things and you should always pay attention this way and you should never pay attention that way. That's not what skillful attention is about, although sometimes it might be spoken of in those terms. What's really interesting is that skillful attention is recognised by the outcome of paying attention. We actually have to look and see, well, what happens if I pay attention to this in this way? And the way the Buddha put it is that if we pay attention to something in a certain way and we notice that as a result there's an increasing of greed or of aversion or hatred or confusion, delusion, of sense of self, for instance. If we pay attention in a way, it's the primary delusion, um, if we pay attention in a way in which gives that strength, then that's not skillful attention. Whereas if we pay an attention in which, when we see the way we're paying attention and to what we're paying attention means, these things start to become less. That is skillful attention. And likewise, if we pay attention and we notice that uh, wholesome qualities, such as attentiveness or kindness or courage or patience or generosity start to become stronger, then we say, oh yeah, that's actually a skillful attention. If we notice they're becoming weaker, oh, that isn't a skillful attention. Because the condition of our mind and the experience that's arising in the heart and mind is conditioned by what we attend to and how we attend. So much of our practice is training in ways of attending and topics of attention. So paying attention to the breathing in a way, in a particular way. Or paying attention to the quality of kindness in a certain way, bringing it forth. And the Buddha once said of this, he said, the untaught, untrained, ordinary person who has no regard for the true Dharma. Now, I'm not sure he used a phrase quite like that, but it sounds good in the... Um, in the, in the translations, who has no regard for true dharma and doesn't understand what things are fit for attention and what things are not, and what ways of paying attention are skillful and what things are not, what ways are not, attends to those things and in such ways that are not fit for attention. Is that a little bit too complicated? It's kind of quite a lot of pieces in there. It's basically saying that without training, we don't pay attention skillfully. And doesn't attend to those things which are unfit for attention. No, doesn't attend to those things which are fit for attention. So skillful attending, attentiveness, is something we train in, something we learn. And we learn it by seeing what's the outcome of the way I'm paying attention. What is actually the effect? If there was a way we could say only pay attention to these things in this ways, it would be a lot simpler. But actually it's a learning process based on the outcomes. And that's why I actually really like the term so much. It's like it's not a fixed thing, it's a live dynamic thing that's actually based on the outcomes we're interested in, which is the arising of that which is wholesome and the diminishing of that which is harmful to our well-being and the world. And there's a, there's a, 
a phrase from the, the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, which is a uh, kind of a famous and rather weighty tome, tome text of, uh, of commentarial teaching uh, from about a thousand years after the Buddha lived. Well, there's, a, there's quite a lovely phrase I, I was teaching with a friend in America recently and he, 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 he was referring to it, so I thought I'd like to just uh, bring it here. It goes like this. When a person is greedy for... I need to actually be able to read it. When a person is greedy for land, gold, houses, animals, that which is powerful is overcome by the powerless. Interesting phrase. And what, it, what it's talking about, and it goes on to say, and when a person is not greedy for land, gold, houses, animals, etc., that's the kind of things you were greedy for in those days, it hasn't changed that much. Um, when one is not greedy for those things, the powerful is not overcome by the powerless. And interestingly, here, what he's saying, what, what it's pointing to, Buddha Gosa, the powerful is actually this heart-mind, this capacity we have. The Buddha used the word citta, this capacity to receive, to meet, and to respond to experience. It's a remarkably powerful capacity we have as human beings. It's the very central feature of what allows the transformation of the, of the human experience from bondage and suffering to freedom, to peace, and to well-being. And yet... It can be overcome by the powerless, which he goes on to say is negativity, greed and confusion. Greed, craving, grasping, aversion, negativity, hatred and confusion, delusion, actually don't have any power in the mind unless we pay attention unskillfully. So when we're greedy for these things, we pay attention to the sign of what we want or what we like, what we desire in them. And in so, we become entangled by them. Or we pay attention to the sign of what we don't like. And in so, we become entangled by aversion, rejection to those experiences. So... In terms of how this, this develops, we, we have this process of wise effort, of skillful engagement, which is seeking to give rise to the wholesome, bring forth the natural human capacities that are, that are noble, that are beautiful, that are transformative in our hearts and in our worlds. And to begin to release, to free ourselves from, to disentangle from the habits and tendencies towards that which is unwholesome, that which actually leads to harm, leads to suffering. And that wise attention is actually the way in which those efforts, we could say, those engagements are carried out, are um, engaged in, I guess. And so we start to notice, oh, what are the conditions and the ways of attending that support the wholesome? We might notice if we give attention to an object of desire. If there's something that we're thinking, I really want one of those, I really like, or I've got to keep this thing. When we're giving attention to something in that way, desire strengthens. 
it gets stronger. If we've been having any thoughts while we were here, I don't know, you know, chocolate, movies, um, talking to a beloved friend or being in our life that we can't do right now, the more we kind of think about that sort of thing, the stronger desire gets. That's its nature. And so that's a paying attention to the object of desire in a way that leads to the arising or the strengthening of the unskillful, the unhelpful. Whereas if we give attention to the impermanence of that thing, the impermanence of the pleasure of a piece of cake or a, or a conversation with someone, we actually see that the desire drops away. And so that way in which it's, yes, we might pay attention to that thing, but what aspect of it we pick up? The sense of it looks pleasant or will be pleasant, or the sense of, oh, it's not forever. Pro very powerfully affects what arises in the heart and the mind as a response to paying attention to it. So it's not like we have to edit these things out of our life. It's not like we have to make sure we don't have contact with these things. Sometimes it looks a little bit like that in terms of a renunciate orientation within practice. But no, it's actually much more about seeing what aspect of the experience we're picking up and actually being able to choose, being able to say, this actually serves to pay attention in this way. Or if we give attention to what's wrong, very easily judgment and anger arises. Have you noticed that? Something that isn't quite the way it should be. Someone who isn't doing things the way they should. Some part of ourself that isn't quite as it would ideally be. If we give attention to that and focus on it's wrong, it shouldn't be like that, they shouldn't have done that, why did they do that? Actually anger arises. And sometimes from anger, violent moods, violent tendencies, violent urges arise. Whereas if when we look at something of that nature and we say, and we actually give attention to the pain and suffering that's in it. So someone's done something that's really annoyed us, maybe. If we pay attention to the fact that it was annoying for me that that happened, we get angry. If we pay attention to the fact that, oh, it happened, probably because that person was suffering or confused or afraid in some way. And that's pretty reliably what's going on. Even if they seem to be greedy, and they're greedy because they're needy, and they're needy because there's something in them that's not satisfied. And that hurts. And we can see that, oh, actually those people who seem to be causing harm through their greed, well, they're suffering, yeah. So I still want to attend to, find some way to respond to that. But the heart doesn't go into that judging, angry, aggressive, rejecting so quickly, or maybe at all. There may be compassion. You know, when we pay attention to the things that aren't quite as we wish them to be about someone or ourselves, Love and kindness doesn't arise. And the Buddha pointed out, he said, oh, actually if you pay attention to the good qualities, the wholesome aspects, that actually is the condition for the arising of love and kindness. And it's skillful. It's not pretending that there aren't those other things that maybe need some attention in ourselves or others, but that to give rise to love and kindness, we simply, we, we turn towards that which is wholesome, beneficial, of value and appreciated, and actually wholesome qualities in the heart then, in response to that way of paying attention, begin to arise. So in talking about this, it can, maybe it's, I don't know if it sounds a bit complicated, 
Um, it's actually a very clear pathway, even though there's lots of permutations to each piece of it. It's a very clear pathway to experientially being able to determine for ourselves what's actually useful in a situation, what's actually happening in the way we're practicing. And that sense of looking and saying, oh, what's happening when I'm engaging like this? What's actually arising? Oh, okay. Now, the fact that, of course, sometimes that craving or greed or aversion, negativity might arise, doesn't mean we're doing it wrong or that we're practicing badly. Not at all. Sometimes the arising of those things is actually because we're practicing well and skillfully and we're challenging the structures in ourselves that give rise to those kind of patterns and behaviors. And it's not so much the arising that's the issue, but whether when it arises, we then continue to feed it or get lost and entangled in it. And so then it's more when we see, oh, if yeah, greed arises or cravings arising, not judging it or ourselves, but just, oh, okay, can I see the, can I see the suffering in that and bring compassion here? Or can I see the, in a way, the, as I said, the, the impermanence in the thing that I want, that I'm craving for, and realize, oh, actually, it won't do it for me in the way it promises to do it for me. It won't. And it can actually be a joyful engagement. Wise effort, again, it can sound a bit sort of stern or grim or sort of dour. Dour. I don't know how to say that word. Do you know how, to, how do you say that word? Is it dour? Dour? Dour. Dour. Okay. D-O-U-R. I guess I don't use it very often. But, uh, but actually there's something very joyful about it. It's like this is actually the way we free ourselves. This is actually the most um, beneficial way of expressing the vitality of our life, practicing in this way. And there's a, there's a beautiful uh, image that used, that's used by Shanti Deva, the uh, sort of uh, rather wonderful and remarkable uh, teacher who, he was a poet, a mystic, a, and a um, very learned scholar who, who, who lived in India in about the 6th century. And Shanti Deva, which... He, he gave some wonderful teachings on, uh, on compassion and many other subjects. But one of the things I most enjoy of his teachings is, is a piece where he talks about practicing. And he says, one could practice with the enthusiasm of an elephant who, being tormented by the heat of the midday sun and the sting of biting flies, would plunge into a pool of cool water. And I kind of just loved the sense of that, you know, large beast plunging sort of wholeheartedly and enthusiastically into a pool of cool water. And, you know, the heat of the midday sun, the burn of craving of unfulfillable desire, not just unfulfilled, but unfulfillable desire, it burns. And the bite, the sting of aversion, of negativity, it's painful to us. And sure, maybe here we might want to think of a, a really nice warm bath that we'd plunge into to soothe the suffering that we may experience. But to be that wholehearted about it, like an elephant just whoomph in, that kind of plunging into our practice, that kind of enthusiastic wholehearted engagement, that's what this journey asks of us. Not holding back. It's not the elephant goes up and dips a toe in the water while being barbecued and bitten. No, no, no. 
all the way in. I kind of imagine most of the water goes out, but uh, if the elephant's picked a big enough pond, there's enough then to sort of roll around in a little bit. And there's that kind of... <sighs> there's a kind of a... <sighs> in our heart, actually, I think, when we just align, orient, and find that sense of trust in a way of engaging that's aligned with what's truly transformative. When one can actually just say, yeah, there's all those pulls, but that's not really a battle for me anymore, that I want to somehow fulfill the pulls of craving and the, the pressures of aversion. Of course, we still have to deal with them. I'm not saying those are finished issues. But that we really get clear that that is not what my path is. And wherever I see them, whether in the external expression in the world or in the more subtle versions of our practice, where we see I'm craving for, oh, I'd like to have a nice, calm, peaceful sitting. Or couldn't that nice sort of open, spacious or sort of sparkly sort of thing that people talk about, couldn't that happen for me? Or if it does happen, couldn't it stay a bit longer than it did the last time? I remember back on that retreat in 1972 when it happened, you know, you know, or... 1992 or 2012, whenever it was. I know some of you go back quite a way with all of this. And we just see, okay. What's really important here is the cultivation, the giving rise to, the allowing to grow these seeds of of goodness, of wholesomeness, of beauty, of nobility that are within our heart and mind already that really are supported by the conditions we have here of the retreat by the, by the engagement, the effort that we bring the willingness to be awake and to see what is skillful in the way of attending here what is useful what allows that which is wholesome to grow, to strengthen, to sustain? What allows that which is unwholesome, unhelpful, to begin to weaken, to drop away, to soften, to be less compelling? And we see that, we start to understand that. And as we do so, what's really important is that we be aware of the tendency to become attached to the results and the outcomes the way in which the sense of self arises as the one who's making the effort or doing the practice and is therefore the producer and the owner of the outcomes and the results. Not being attached to result. We can't always see the fruit of our practice on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Sometimes it feels hard, difficult, confusing, we're struggling. That doesn't mean necessarily it isn't wholesome and beneficial. Sometimes we're cruising, it feels great, we might be enjoying it. Having wonderful meditative experiences. That doesn't mean it's necessarily deepening or transformative. But whatever that may be the case, when we take the experiences to somehow be mine, to somehow be me, that inevitably creates a tightness around the way we effort. And the effort starts to become, or the endeavor starts to become, something about producing a better version of me, or an acceptable version of me, or avoiding being an unacceptable version of me. And so if we claim credit for that which is wholesome and beautiful and noble, 
we inevitably have to take the blame for that which is not. We have to feel diminished by that which is not. To let go of both, the wholesome and the unwholesome, while at the same time engaging in the cultivation of the one and the relinquishing of the other, without taking them to mean something about me. Beyond, of course, the seeing of our interest in well-being, our interest in, in our heart's potential becoming more fully manifest, in our heart's suffering becoming less, and the interest in the freedom of this heart and mind that we have. Of course, that's an interest that's appropriate, that's necessary. So noticing what is wholesome when it arises, being able to honour that, but in a way giving the, the credit both to our practice but in a way to the deeper alignment with the Dharma. That is how it, in fact, the fruit comes to grow. And so in a way we honour the Dharma in the practice and the Dharma that's coming through what we call ourselves, or what we call this life. It's the Dharma coming through that is transforming, and it's the life itself that is transformed. To really trust in what is possible for us, for each of us, for me, for you, for everyone here, and in fact for all beings to deeply trust in what is possible for us. Now the Buddha once said of this path and this practice, knowing how challenging it is, knowing deeply how challenging it is to do what we're doing here. He said, you know, if it were not possible to do this, to liberate this heart and mind, I wouldn't ask you to do it. I wouldn't ask you to try. But it is possible. To liberate this heart, this mind. And so I do ask you, I do invite you, encourage you to engage in this way. And so to hold together with that, perhaps that sense of urge and urgency of really making good use of this precious opportunity that expresses itself in the, in the skillful engagement and skillful attention and letting go of that which does not serve and nourishing that which does. At the same time as that urge and that urgency which is so important and so powerful to understand the dimension also of trust and relationship to the unstoppableness of this journey. Just as water flows unstoppably towards the ocean, so too 
our lives and our journeys. Having oriented towards this, having set that compass, we don't need to measure, compare or judge or evaluate progress or regress. Where we are in that. But to actually just trust the directionality that we're moving in. As the saying goes, if you keep moving in the direction you're heading, eventually that's where you're going to end up. So allowing that urge to be held within the larger space of, of trust, of faith in this journey of awakening, in this path and practice. Which is not so much something that we are travelling as practitioners, although of course in one way it's so that that's what we're doing, we travelling this path, this journey, ultimately we could perhaps more usefully understand it that we are becoming this path, this journey, expressing itself through what it is that we are, that we already are, but maybe do not yet fully understand. And yet are more and more coming closer to and touching perhaps more deeply into the understanding of the Dharma, that we are, the way things are. And in this, that momentum of practice and engagement and skillful, wise, courageous, passionate and enthusiastic endeavour also sits at peace and in stillness. Just as the Buddha, when asked how did I cross the flood, as I said, as I referred to at the beginning of the talk, not staying, not stayed, nor striving, not halting, nor efforting. This is how the flood is crossed. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together.
So may we all here in our practice and in the journeys of our lives, may we come to more deeply understand the balance of skillful endeavor, May we find the courage and the enthusiasm for this journey again and again with kindness and with wholehearted endeavor. The flood of samsara is crossed. And may we all know that crossing. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.